0: Well, good morning, church family. Welcome to, welcome to Stones Crossing Church. My name is Scott Luck. I'm one of the pastors here. We're really delighted that you uh, are here with us this morning. And let me just begin by just asking you a question. Is Christianity true? Is Christianity true? Is it, is it just wishful thinking or blind faith? You know, can you give a reason for the hope that you have? Well, that's what we're going to be really talking about this morning, and we're going to go even deeper into it uh, this evening at 4.30. We have the privilege and the honor uh, to host Dr. Frank Turek today. I'm just thrilled to be able to introduce him to you. He's a nationally known speaker. He speaks colleges and universities, churches, conferences uh, all over the United States. He's also the author of five books, and uh, one of the most recent books he's written is I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And uh, we have that book on sale in the foyer, and uh, I'm sure he's going he's to talk a little bit about that. But he has appeared on uh, different media outlets, CBS, NBC, Fox News. Um, he hosts his own television show called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. He has devoted his entire life to really going all over and sharing the evidences for the Christian faith. He leads a ministry called crossexamine.org. And um, he has devoted his life to just sharing the truth of the gospel and uh, equipping Christians, but also evangelizing non-Christians and why uh, Christianity is true. He's even debated very prominent skeptics like Christopher Hitchens and Michael Shermer, who's the publisher of Skeptic Magazine. I didn't even know there was such a magazine, but, uh, but he, is, he really knows his stuff and we are delighted to have him. Now tonight, there will be a, a, a session at 430 And uh, like I said, he's going to go deeper into answering this question, is Christianity true? But the great thing about tonight is we're going to give you an opportunity to ask him any question that you want to ask him. And so we want to encourage you to be a part of that. And I would love to see you here tonight. Everybody get it? All right. Well, would you all welcome Dr. Frank Turek. Good morning
1: ladies and gentlemen. Let's go back to September 29th, 2006. That's when Petty Officer Michael Monsoor is United States Navy SEAL operating in Ramadi, Iraq. Monsoor is standing on a roof in Ramadi and he's standing in front of a doorway to this roof. He has two Navy SEAL teammates lying in the sniper-prone position next to him at his feet. They've already taken AK-47 fire and a rocket-propelled grenade, but they're not exactly sure where the enemy is. There's a bit of a low in the fighting. Insurgents have blocked off the streets in Ramadi, and there's someone on the loudspeaker in the town mosque yelling, KILL THE AMERICANS! As Monsoor and his team are looking for the next attack, an insurgent from an unknown location throws a grenade up on the roof. It hits Monsoor in the chest, and it falls to his feet. Due to the length of the throw, there's no opportunity to pick it up and throw it back. He has only a split second to make a decision. He can leap through the doorway behind him and save himself, But if he does, his two teammates, lying at his feet, will surely die. Mansour yells, Grenade! But instead of jumping backward to save himself, he jumps forward, chest first, onto the grenade. It detonates. 30 minutes later, 25-year-old Michael Mansour is dead. His two teammates, lying at his feet, receive only minor injuries, because Mansoor's body muffled the blast. One of the survivors said at Mansoor's funeral, Mikey looked death in the face that day and said, you will not take my friends, I will go in their stead. I've never seen a United States President cry until April of 2008. That's when President George W. Bush invited Mansoor's parents into the East Room of the White House to give them their son's Medal of Honor, posthumously. The president couldn't even get through the citation without breaking down. Since then, Monsours High School in Garden Grove, California, built a new stadium. They named it Michael A. Monsoor Memorial Stadium. The golden trident insignia that the seals wear dominates the 50-yard line. January 2019, North Island, California, just outside of San Diego, the United States Navy commissioned the USS Michael Monsor, the newest guided missile destroyer in the fleet, Zumwalt class. This is Monsoor's mother, Sally, being escorted onto the ship, named in honor of her fallen son. Now, why did they do this? Because Michael Mansour literally sacrificed himself to save his friends. There's no greater love than to sacrifice yourself to save your friends, said Jesus of Nazareth before he went to the cross. Michael Mansour sacrificed himself to save his friends. The question is would anyone sacrifice himself to save you? And the answer is someone already has. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. But in today's culture, many people don't think the story's true. They think it's invented. After all, it was written down by religious people. We know religious people tend to embellish things. And it's also got miracles in it, like a resurrection. How many people in this room have ever seen someone resurrect from the dead after you knew that person was dead for at least 36 hours? Anyone? none of us yet if you want to be a Christian you have to believe something that none of us have ever seen how rational is that well I actually think it's quite easy to show that Christianity is true you only need to answer four questions in other words if you investigate these four questions I think you'll realize that the answer to these four questions is yes and if the answer to these four questions is yes then Christianity is true What are the four questions? Here are the four questions. Now that is some pretty grooving music, isn't it? Yeah, that is actually from our TV show that Scott said. It's on Wednesday nights on DirecTV channel 378. How many people here have DirecTV? Can I show your hands, please? T V. One person. Come on, friends, don't let friends watch cable. If you want to get out and have enough faith to be an atheist, you got to get DirecTV. Actually, that's not true. How many people here have Roku? Anyone have Roku? All right, good, good. Look for NRB TV on Roku at those times. If you don't have DirecTV and you don't have Roku, it's on this new technology sweeping Indiana right now. It's called the Internet. Have you guys heard of this? Yeah, go to our website, crossexamine.org. At that time, you can watch it. We're also on radio every Saturday morning. Uh, That's podcasted as well. It's called I Don't Have Enough Faith to be an Atheist. We present evidence for Christianity And we cross-examine ideas against it. Now, why are these the four questions? Truth, God, miracles, and the New Testament. And this is going to serve as our outline here this morning and tonight. In fact, this morning we're just going to cover point one. Tonight we'll do two, three, four. And if I time it just right tonight, we'll have absolutely no time for questions. No, no, we'll have time for questions later, all right? why is that why are these the four does truth exist why is that important because you hear people saying there's no truth you got your truth i got my truth all truth is relative right you've probably heard these claims right well if there's no truth christianity can't be true of course if there's no truth atheism can't be true either nothing can be true if there's no truth now obviously there's truth ladies and gentlemen if there was no truth would you ever go to school i mean what are you going to school for right would you ever read a book would you ever go to church Would you ever be able to catch someone in a lie if there was no truth? Lies presuppose truth. Of course there's truth. We're gonna deal with that first. Second question, does God exist? Obviously, Christianity can't be true if there's no God, but I hope to show you tonight that there really is a theistic God, a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, moral, personal, intelligent creator who created all things and sustains all things to this very moment. We'll see three arguments for this being tonight. These arguments are taught in the Bible, but you don't need the Bible to know them. In fact, you can show that God exists without any reference to any religious work. The third question, are miracles possible? Why is that important? Because if miracles aren't possible, Christianity can't be true. And a lot of people don't believe in miracles, but I hope to show you tonight that not only are miracles possible, But the greatest miracle in the Bible has already occurred and even atheists are admitting the evidence for this miracle. Then we're gonna get to the key question, is the New Testament true? The New Testament doesn't have a prayer if there's no truth, no God, or no miracles. But if truth exists, if God exists, if miracles are possible, then we can see if the New Testament documents are reliable enough They don't have to be inerrant to know this. We're not assuming they're inerrant. We just want to see if they're reliable enough to learn if one particular event from the ancient world took place, what would that event be? the resurrection, right? Because if Jesus rose from the dead, game over, Christianity's true. Of course, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, game over, it's false. You might as well sleep in on Sunday and do what you want the rest of the week because if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, your faith is in vain, as the Apostle Paul himself said to the church at Corinth, his first letter, chapter 15, your faith's in vain. You realize that Christianity is a religious worldview that you can investigate and actually discover as to whether or not it's true. It's not just somebody's philosophy, I said so, no. You can look into the evidence and see if it really happened. Now from this point, and we do this in the book, you can show that the entire Bible is the inerrant word of God, and it all hinges on Jesus. We don't have time to get into it now, but it's, it's based on Jesus. Because if Jesus really predicted and accomplished his own resurrection from the dead, then he's God. And whatever God teaches is true. Jesus taught the entire Old Testament as the word of God, and he promised the New Testament. You say, why trust Jesus? Look, I just have a personal policy. If somebody predicts and accomplishes his own resurrection from the dead, I just trust whatever the guy says, okay? Now, I know some of you are probably thinking, Frank, why would we even go through this? Aren't we supposed to just have faith, you know, blind faith? Just believe. No, 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 a thousand times no. No. In fact, the scriptures even talk about having evidence. Peter is just one example. Peter says, always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Now, the gentleness and respect thing is hard for me because I'm originally from New Jersey. All right? But we're supposed to give evidence as to why we believe things. I think about it. This makes sense. I mean, why would, why, why would you be a Christian and not a Muslim? Why would you be a Christian and not an atheist, or a Buddhist, or an agnostic, or a New Ager? Why? The reason is because Christianity is true. That's why. And I hope to show you it is. And what we're going to do is we're going to start right here at point one. Does truth exist? You guys ready to go? Are you guys ready to go? All right. Now, whenever you start talking about truth, you always have to start with Jack Nicholson. Right? Because Tom Cruise had him on the witness stand, and he said to him, Colonel, I want the truth. And Nicholson said, you can't handle the truth. Stones crossing. That was so lame. If he said it that way, the movie would have gone nowhere. You can't handle the, that's not how he said it. Here's how he said it the truth. Hey, we need a little bit more volume back there. Crank that up, will you? Let's do this again. You ready? I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. All right, let's try it again. I want the truth. You can't handle it. Now that felt better, didn't it? Didn't you always want to say that in church? <laughs> Pastor Scott's up here and you just go, "You can't handle the truth." Well, there's a lot of people that can't handle the truth. They're saying, you got your truth, I got my truth, all truth is relative. Well, if you don't get anything outside of what we talk about this morning or even tonight, what we're going to talk about here in the next few minutes is the most important thinking skill I think any of us can learn. And to show you what a dimwit I was, I was was 33 years old, I already had a master's degree, and I did not know what I'm about to, to tell you right now. And it's all based on logic. I never had a course in logic until I went to seminary. How many people in here have ever had a course on logic? Can I see your hands, please? Thank you, homeschoolers. There they are, right there. Did you see that? If we taught logic in public school, it would, it would solve a lot of our problems. What I'm about to show you is a principle that if you get your mind around, half of what you need to know to defend the Christian faith, you'll already know. Why? Because this, this tactic we're about to talk about will help you discover what is false. And half the battle is discovering what is false, so you can avoid false ideas and then spend your time concentrating on true ideas. The problem is we get sucked into these false ideas, and if you do that, if you start trying to live your life according to false principles, ultimately you're gonna smack up against reality and it's gonna hurt. So what is this thinking skill? The easiest way of showing it to you is to give you an example of using it. If someone were to say to you, there is no truth, you should ask that person a question, what should the question be? Yeah, if somebody says there's no truth, you simply want to say, hey, is that true? Is it true that there's no truth? Because if it's true that there's no truth, the claim there is no truth can't be true, but it claims to be true. Did I say that right? Can everybody see this as a self-defeating statement? What's a self-defeating statement? A self-defeating statement violates the law of non-contradiction, which says, opposite ideas cannot both be true at the same time and in the same sense. A self-defeating statement doesn't meet its own standard. This is a truth claim claiming there are no truths. It would be like saying, I can't speak a word in English. If I were to say that, what would you say? Hey, you just used English to say it. Or it'd be like me saying, my parents had no kids that lived or my brother is an only child, or everything I say is a lie. Some of you will get that tomorrow. (laughs) Or all generalizations are false. Some of you will never get that one. These are known as self-defeating statements, and here's the thinking skill, here's the tactic. What you want to do is you want to turn the claim on itself turn the claim on itself. So if somebody says there's no truth, you turn the claim on itself and you ask, is that true? Okay. Simple. Let's do a few more of these because this this is very ubiquitous in our culture. Suppose someone says there's no such thing as absolute truth. It's another way of saying there's no truth. What question are you going to ask him? Yeah. You're simply going to say, is that an absolute truth? Or you might want to say, are you absolutely sure? Because that's an absolute truth claim, claiming there are no such things as absolute truths, right? Now, in our culture, it's not said this way much anymore. More often, it's said this way. There isn't the truth, only my truth. You've probably heard people say that, right? You know, you have your truth, I have my truth. You live your truth, I live my truth. We'll all get along. It sounds so right. It sounds like we ought to believe this, right? It sounds so Oprah, doesn't it? You've got your truth, I've got my truth, just live it, we'll all get along. There's just one problem with it. Can anyone see the problem? Turn the claim on itself. If somebody says, there isn't the truth, only my truth, you simply say, is that just your truth or the truth? You see, because if this statement up here is just your truth, in other words, if it's just your opinion, then why should I believe it? But if you're saying this statement up here is the truth, well, the first half of the statement says there are no the truths. Can everybody see that this is a the truth statement claiming there are no the truths? It's self-defeating. It's like saying I can't speak a word in English. Now, I know this is not popular in our culture today to say this, but I'll say it anyway. There's no such thing as your truth. There's no such thing as my truth. There's just the truth. If you want to say you have your own truth, you might as well say, I have my own math. I mean, imagine, say Pastor Scott asked me to stay an extra day, and he said, hey, Frank, I need some uh, extra help around the house. Come over to my house tomorrow. No matter how many hours you work, I'll pay you $10 an hour. So I agree. Now, actually, Pastor Scott would never do this. He doesn't pay that much. Anyway, (laughs) suppose I go to his house, and I work there for 15 hours. And after, he goes, okay, what do I owe you? And I go, "Uh, you owe me $150,000. And he goes, $150,000? I don't owe you $150,000. I owe you $150. And I go, oh, no, you don't understand. I have my own math. What do you think he's going to say? You're crazy. There's no my math or your math. There's just math. There's no my truth or your truth. There's just truth. And yet people don't want to hear that. Now, sometimes it isn't said this way, sometimes it's said this way, it's true for you but not for me, right? Well, Christianity may be true for you but Buddhism's true for me, what do you say to that? This is also self-defeating and if you turn the claim on itself, when somebody says it's true for you but not for me, you ought to say, hey, is that true for everybody? Is true for you but not for me true for everybody? Because if true for you but not for me is true for everybody, then true for you but not for me can't be true because it's true for everybody. Did I say that right? I know that can give you intellectual constipation if you think about it long enough, but that's because it's self-defeating. It's like saying I can't speak a word in English. Actually, there's a more fun way of dealing with this. If somebody says it's true for you, but not for me, say, sure, go try that with your bank teller. Yeah, go to your bank teller and say, look, the economy is down, inflation's up, I need some extra money, I'd like $100,000 out of my account. The bank teller looks your account and says, I'm sorry, you only have $6.14 in your account. It's easy to get the money. You simply say, ha, that's true for you, but not for me. Give me the 100 grand. Are you going to get the money? No, if it's true there was only $6.14 in your account, that's true for all people at all times and all places when referring to your account at that time. It's just true. And the same thing is true, by the way, when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus really rose from the dead, that's true for all people at all times and all places, regardless of what you believe about it. Of course, if he didn't rise from the dead, then he didn't. And that's true for all people at all times in all places, regardless of what you believe about it. Now, a lot of times I, when I go to churches, I ask people, do you think Christianity's true? And most people will say yes, and then I'll ask them why. You know what answer I get more than any other? Because I have faith. Is that a good answer? Does your faith change whether or not Christianity is true? Does your faith change whether or not God exists or Jesus rose from the dead? No, your faith doesn't change a thing about those things. I mean, do you have to believe something to make it true? Do you have to believe in gravity to stay on the ground? Do people who don't believe in gravity float away? Hey, look, there's another one. (laughs) Hey, if you believe, you'll come back. No, that's not the way it works. You say, why is the Bible always talking about faith then? Because there's two kinds of faith. This is a very important distinction. There's belief that, and then there's belief in. Belief that is getting evidence that God exists, that Jesus rose from the dead, that the Bible's telling the truth. We call that apologetics. Doesn't mean we're saying we're sorry. It means we're giving evidence for what we believe. But all the belief that in the world won't get your moral transgressions forgiven. For that, you gotta go from belief that to belief in. There's a difference. Belief that is just of the head. Belief in is not only of the head, it's of the heart. James the half-brother of Jesus who wrote that little book in the New Testament called you guys are sharp this morning James says even the demons believe that God exists but they tremble do you realize that if God exists and he does and if demons exist and they do that they know that God exists better than we do but they don't trust in him they don't want to trust in him there's a difference. There's a difference between belief that and belief in. In fact, we know this in relationships, don't we? When I first met my wife 37 years ago, I got evidence that she would be a good wife, but all the evidence in the world didn't make her my wife. I had to take a step of trust in her to ask her to be my wife. And in a momentary lapse of judgment, she said yes. (laughs) That's the difference between belief that and belief in. Now, most of the time, when the Bible's talking about faith, it's talking about the second kind, belief in. In other words, after you know that Jesus is the Savior, then trust in him so he can take your sins away and give you his righteousness. Now, if you don't want to do that, you don't have to. God is not going to force you into heaven against your will. If you don't want him now, you're not going to want him in eternity. So always remember there's a difference between belief that and belief in. Oh, how about this too? There's no truth in anything but science. You've probably heard this, right? What's the problem with the claim? Turn the claim on itself. Anyone? This is the interactive portion of the program, okay? What? Yeah, exactly. You could just say, hey, is that a scientific truth? Can you go in the laboratory and prove that claim? No, that's a philosophical claim. You can't prove that in the laboratory. That's philosophy. And you can't do science without philosophy. In fact, science is built on philosophy. In fact, in the book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, we have a little section in there about science. Here's the title of this section. Science doesn't say anything. Scientists do. Think about it. Why am I saying that? Because all data needs to be gathered, and all data needs to be interpreted, and who does that? Scientists, you ever wonder why you get conflicting advice on COVID? They say, oh, oh, just follow the science. Who's science? Look, if scientists have good data and they interpret it properly, you get good advice. If they have good data and don't interpret it properly, you'll get bad advice. If they got bad data, it doesn't matter how they interpret it, you're gonna get bad advice. If there's a political agenda, oh no, that'll never happen. Why do we think that scientists are immune to the same three temptations the rest of us are not immune to? Sex, money, and power. In fact, we'll talk about more of these tonight. Do you think there may be some sort of agenda, a power agenda or a money agenda as to why you're getting conflicting advice? Something to think about, isn't it? Because science doesn't say a word, scientists say things. And by the way, when you have to censor people who disagree with you, that's a telltale sign. Maybe you don't have a really good case. So don't buy into the idea that all truth comes from science. In fact, you can't can't know what science does without philosophy. You can't know what the Bible says without philosophy. Everything's built on philosophy. When you get a PhD, what does the PhD stand for? doesn't mean phenomenally dumb, it means philosophy of history, physics, biology, whatever it is. You've got to interpret the data, that's right thinking about reality, that's what philosophy is. And tonight maybe we'll talk a little bit about how philosophy taints the way people interpret data about biology. Or even cosmology. And when you think about it, while science is important, it's not the most important thing in life. I mean, the most important things in life have nothing to do with science. Honey, do you love me? Yeah. Why? I don't know. Let's run an experiment. No, It's not it. Oh, how about this one? You hear this a lot. You should doubt everything, the skeptical claim. What's the problem with the claim? Yeah, if somebody says you should doubt everything, you ought to say, should I doubt that? Why are you skeptical of everything but skepticism? Notice they don't doubt that; they think it's true. Now, how many people in here, regardless of what you believe about God, how many people in here sometimes doubt that what you think about God is true? Look, if you don't have your hand up right now, you're probably not thinking very much. I mean, I've written books on this stuff, and sometimes I wake up in the morning, I go, I don't even know if this is true. In fact, my friend Greg Kokel, who is a great Christian apologist, wrote the book Tactics. If you don't have the book Tactics, you ought to get it. It helps you converse with people on these issues. Greg says, before I have my first cup of coffee in the morning, I'm an atheist. (laughs) After I have my first cup, I'm a Jehovah's Witness. (laughs) By the time I have my second cup, I'm back to being a Christian again. Now, what's changing, him or the evidence? He's changing, right? If everything's fine, he's okay. It's like me. If, if I'm on a good day, everything's fine. If I'm on a bad day, I don't know. Good day, fine. Bad day, don't know. Good day, fine. Bad day, don't know. What's changing, me or the evidence? The evidence isn't changing, I'm changing. Don't let your psychology overpower the evidence. And by the way, your psychology can lead you astray. There are probably some people here who cannot get on an airplane. Right, you're scared to death, get on an airplane. But when you look at the evidence, the safest way to get anywhere is on an airplane. The problem is you're allowing your psychology to overpower that. Don't let that be you when it comes to eternity. Do you realize that your psychology will not tell you what's true outside your skull? The evidence will. And yeah, you can go up and down. Your psychology can change with the weather. It probably does here, doesn't it? Right. Your psychology isn't telling you the truth, then. The evidence will tell you the truth. So concentrate on the evidence. And if you concentrate on the evidence, I think you'll realize that Christianity is indeed true. And then you can start doubting your doubts. And if you start doubting your doubts, then you're back to knowing something for sure. Have you guys ever thought about doubting your doubts? I doubt it. (laughs) Oh, this is the big one in our culture. You ought not judge. Jesus said, don't judge. Why are you judging, you hypocrites? All right, let's put Jesus aside for just a second. Let's just talk about the problem with the claim. Logically, what's the problem with the claim? Yeah, if somebody says you ought not judge, you might want to say, hey, isn't that a judgment? Or you can get real sassy and put your hands on your hips and go, then why are you judging me for judging? (laughs) See, because it's a judgment to say don't make judgments. You say, wait a minute, Frank, didn't Jesus say don't judge? Nope, never said it. Oh, sure he did. He said it in Matthew chapter seven, verse one. His most important or famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. All right, I know this is gonna sound odd for just a minute, but stick with me. There are no verses in the Bible. There are no verses in the Bible. Do you think that when Matthew was writing his biography of Jesus, which we call a gospel, he said, here's chapter seven, verse one, Now, when were the chapter and verse divisions put in the text? About 500 years ago, to help us navigate the text, which is important, why? Because it would be really hard to find your way around this big series of books without numbers. I mean, imagine if Pastor Scott got up here one Sunday, he opened his Bible, he didn't have numbers in his Bible, you didn't have numbers in yours, and he simply said, let's go about two-thirds of the way in, let's see if we can find the same spot, right? Like You wouldn't be able to do that, right? You need numbers so you can find your way around. The problem is, we tend to think if it's got a number in front of it, we can make it say whatever we want. That's not correct. Now, I'm going to make some of you mad here, but that's okay, I'm leaving tomorrow, so it doesn't (laughs) matter. He's got to deal with it. This is why you should never claim that Jeremiah 29.11 is a promise to you. You know Jeremiah 29, 11, Oh, the plans I have for you, plans to give you hope in a future, plans to prosper you 70 years from now. That's not a promise to us today. Yet people will put that on pillows. They'll put it on coffee cups. They'll put it on posters, on birthday cards. Why? What's the context of that? That's a letter written to the exiles in 586 B.C., that went to Babylon. God said he would prosper them 70 years later and bring them back to the land. It's not a promise to us. Unless you're 2600 years old living under Nebuchadnezzar in in Iraq, this is not a promise to you. I always ask people who say, hey, that's a promise. When they say that's a promise to me today, I say, well, why don't you claim Jeremiah 4411 as a promise? What's Jeremiah 4411? That's what God told the people that went to Egypt, the exiles that went to Egypt, what would happen to them. He told them not to go there. You know what Jeremiah forty four eleven says? I will destroy you in all Judah. You don't see that stitched into a pillow. You don't see that on a birthday card, happy birthday. I will destroy you in all Judah. That is so sweet, Grandma. Thank you so much. No, we take stuff out of context. Stop that. Now, what's the context of Matthew 7, 1? Same thing. He doesn't say, judge not, and he stops right there. What does he say? Judge not, lest you be judged by the same standard you judge others, you be judged by that standard. So before you try and take the speck out of your brother's eye, you hypocrite, which is a judgment, take the log out of your own eye first, then you'll be better able to help your brother. Then he starts talking about, don't cast your pearls before swine, which is another judgment, right? Is Jesus telling us not to judge here? No, he's telling us to take the speck out of our brother's eye. That involves making a judgment. He's simply saying, get that problem out of your life first so you can better help your brother. So this is not a command not to judge. It's actually a command on how to judge. In other words, don't judge hypocritically. If you've got that problem, fix it, then go help your brother. But it would be completely ridiculous to say, no, make judgments. Why? Number one, it's a judgment itself. And number two, you'd be dead already if you didn't make judgments. You made a hundred judgments this morning, just getting over here. And now you're going, this was a bad judgment. This guy's crazy. (laughs) Everybody makes judgments. Atheists make judgments. They judge there's no God. They judge Jesus didn't rise from the dead. They judge there's no objective meaning to life. It's hopeless. When you die, you're just gonna become worm food. It's over. Have a nice day. These are all judgments. The question isn't whether or not you can make judgments. The question is, are your judgments true? In fact, in John 7, 24, Jesus said, Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. Now, I will say this. Jesus did save a very stern rebuke for people who were judgmental. And who were the judgmental ones in his day? The Pharisees. And who were the Pharisees? What was their job? What did they do? They were the religious and political leaders of Israel. They were on the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, to whom Rome delegated much of the day-to-day legal authority to. They ran the country. These were the politicians. And Jesus went after these people. Are you telling me Jesus got involved in politics? Yes! And he wasn't so nice doing it. In fact, if you think Jesus was a sweet guy who's never said a bad word about anyone, you have not read John chapter 2, John chapter 8, or Matthew chapter 23. What happens in John chapter 2? Jesus makes a whip and he goes and he jacks people up in the temple. Sweet and gentle Jesus did this? Yes! And then in John chapter 8, he's arguing with these Pharisees, these politicians, and he's right in the middle of an argument with him when he says, your father is the devil. Jesus, you can't say that. That's not very Christ-like. Excuse me, I am Christ. (laughs) Do you imagine you're having an argument with somebody and you say, your father is the devil. Never try that with a sibling, by the way. (laughs) And then in Matthew 23, Jesus is again going after these Pharisees. And he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Oh, you look great on the outside, you're whitewashed tombs, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. You go a mile to make a convert, and then once you make them a convert, you make them twice as much a son of hell as you are. How will you avoid being condemned to hell? What? Sweet and gentle Jesus said this? Jesus was not Barney. Can't we all get along, boys and girls? No! I came to bring a sword, it's gonna divide mother and daughter, father and son. How often have you heard that talked about? And many of you in this room know that that's true, why? Because some of you are Christians in here and your own family hates you because of that. Your family's divided because of Jesus. So don't buy into this idea that you can't make judgments. You have to make judgments without being judgmental, though. Hey, by the way, I've noticed one other thing about judging. You ever notice that when you compliment somebody, which is a judgment, nobody gets upset? You know, if you say to your best friend, I really love you, you're such a wonderful person. You think your friend's going to say, well, who are you to judge? Like nobody's going to say that, right? I've noticed that people don't have a problem with judging. They just have a problem with judgments they don't like in fact if you tell somebody something that's true and they get upset with you you just help convict them as augustine said we love the truth when it enlightens us we hate the truth when it convicts us a few military people in here and by the way i was in the navy for eight years which stands for never again volunteer yourself <laughs> for you military people in here you always get more flack when you're over the target If you tell somebody something that's true and they're shooting back at you, you're over the target. They don't want their evil deeds exposed. As Jesus said, men love darkness rather than light. So we have to make judgments without being judgmental. Someone put it this way. Evangelism is just one beggar showing another beggar where the food is. None of us are going to make it on our own merit. We're here to offer food, and we're all starving. We all need it. Now, we don't have time. There's more of these we could go through. Let's just sum it up this way. Can everybody see that this statement right here shoots itself? (laughs) Can everybody see that? And all the other statements we went through, you know, there's no absolute truth. It's true for you, but not for me. You ought not judge the same. They 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 defeat themselves, which means relativism and postmodernism are false, because they claim it's true that there is no truth. Now, tragically, most of our major universities and even many of our high schools buy into postmodernism and relativism, which is crazy when you think about it. You're paying your kid, you're paying hundred, two hundred thousand dollars to have your kid learn the truth that there is no truth really. In fact, we go to a lot of college campuses, as Scott says. This is a a picture actually from the University of Wisconsin at Madison, who loves the Bible about as much as the University of California at Berserkly does. (laughs) And um, we put a microphone up for Q&A, And uh, whenever an atheist gets up to the microphone and expresses any hostility at all, I normally ask this question, and this question I recommend you ask to people who are not Christians. Here's the question. If Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? I've had atheists stand at that microphone in front of hundreds of people and say, no, no, how is that reasonable? How is that rational? It's not, the problem isn't in the head, the problem's in the heart. They don't want it to be true. They don't want there to be a God. Why? Because they want to be God of their own lives. They're not on a truth quest. They're on a happiness quest. And they're just going to believe whatever they think is going to make them happy. Here's the problem. You can make yourself happy over the short term doing a lot of fun but selfish things. Yet over the long term, it's a disaster. And everyone in this room over 40 knows what I'm talking about because many of us have tried it ourselves, haven't we? I'm going to do it my way. And there's a whole bunch of debris in your past. A whole bunch of baggage you're carrying forward because you tried to do it your way. If you wanna get contentment, you gotta go straight through truth, and Jesus is the truth. So always ask the question, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? If the person hesitates or says no, it's not a head problem, it's a heart problem. In fact, let me ask this question, a little informal survey here. This is just for the Christians. Christians I want you to think of somebody you know who's not a Christian whom you'd like to be a Christian. Friend, relative, somebody like that. Everybody got someone? All right, don't point at them. All right. All right, here's my question. Is the person you're thinking of on a relentless pursuit of truth? They want to know if Christianity is true. Or are they apathetic or maybe even hostile to Christianity? How many people say the person I'm thinking of is on a relentless pursuit of truth? They want to know if Christianity's true. Crickets. How many people say the person I'm thinking of is apathetic or hostile? Yeah, look around the room. It's always 99 to 1 or 100 to 0. The truth is, most people are looking for God like a criminal's looking for a cop. They're not interested. They're running. So what do you do with such people? You ask them, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? And if they hesitate or say no, there's four things you can do. You can pray, you can plant seeds, you can love them, which doesn't mean you approve of everything they do, we'll talk about that tonight, and then you can wait. Because if that person's ever gonna be open, it's gonna be when a tragedy strikes. And then your phone is gonna ring and that person's gonna be on the other end. They're not gonna call their atheist friend when, the, when tragedy strikes. What the, what's the atheist friend gonna say? Well, there's no rhyme or reason to life, these things just happen. No, they're going to call you a person of spiritual depth. When the student is ready, the teacher will appear. So pray, plant seeds, love, and wait. But always ask the question. All right, so we know that truth exists. The next question is it true that God exists? And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. And uh, we have some books available on the book table. If you can't come back tonight, you ought to text the word evidence to this phone number because I'm going to send you the entire PowerPoint presentation uh, in a PDF format. In fact, not just this PowerPoint presentation, but about four or five others as well. Text the word evidence to 855-909-0582. 855-909-0582. And if you do get a book or a DVD, I wanna point out that all the proceeds from the sale of the books and the DVDs will go to feed needy children. Mine, okay? <laughs> Just so you know, I got three sons, so I need some help. In fact, this particular uh, book right or DVD right here goes through all of this in about seven hours. You can, get, uh, you can get workbooks that go with it off our website. You can use it for small groups. You can use it for um, Sunday schools or home schools, so check all that out. And when we come back tonight, we're gonna see there's a lot more to the Michael Monsoor story as well. All right, so I hope to see you tonight at 4.30, it's not tonight, it's afternoon, right? 4.30 and as I say, we will have time for questions as well. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you that you've uh, given us evidence for the fact that you do exist, that you did come into this space-time continuum to sacrifice yourself for our benefit. I pray that uh, you'd give us opportunities to share this with others as we also edify ourselves. Thank you for Stones Crossing Church, Scott and the entire team here. Help us to be beacons for truth in a world that continues to get more and more dark. In Christ's name, amen.